0: Hello church family, Uh, what a joy to gather together this week online. Uh, It's a joy to gather again this way and and Mark and I were talking just this week about uh, the dynamic of the way this has been and and how amazing it is that we have these tools that we have to be able to do this even though several months into uh, COVID restrictions we still uh, maybe you're growing weary of doing this online or not able to do to do this in person and we recognize you know what it's just not the same is it but praise god that we can still do this this way and so uh, our challenge to you is if we will approach this especially several months into the restrictions if we will approach these times with a heart that's prepared a heart full of anticipation a heart that's longing to know more of Christ And uh, the realization that as we worship, we're doing this with brothers and sisters at the same time across our city and beyond. These times of worship, if we will keep all that in our heart, they can be really significant times. And so that's our challenge for you today. Well, today we're continuing our study in 1 Corinthians. And uh, the last few weeks, I tell you, we've had to buckle up our seatbelts, haven't we, in in this study. And uh, within this, this study, we're moving into a section now that we're entitling living as light, how the gospel changes everything. And as we look at chapter 8 today, we're going to be specifically looking at how the gospel changes the way that you and I, members of the body of Christ, live life together. What's the dynamic and how, how do uh, the, all the implications play out of my life and your life when they collide, when, when we all live in light of the liberty we have in Christ how does that affect one another? And if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and be turning there to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to look at the whole chapter today, and the words are going to be up on the screen. They're going to be over in the live chat feed. They're going to, there's going to be a tab with Scripture. I mean, you may have a physical Bible. The, the words are going to be there for you today, so take advantage of that. Read along with me. And so today, we're looking at the question of, what do you do? When you face an issue that e- either isn't directly addressed by God's word or it's more of like a kind of a gray area when it comes to what scripture says about it, there's no real de- definite yes or no. And so that's the situation that the apostle Paul found himself in as he wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, we saw back in chapter 7 that this entire letter from Paul is a response to another letter that was written by this Corinthian church to Paul, asking him questions, wanting to know about some certain issues. And that's why when you get to the beginning of our chapter, in chapter 8, Paul says, now about food. He's moving on to the next subject. First it was, so concerning marriage. Well, now now about food. And Paul's writing this church about specific questions. And that's really helpful for us today because this isn't just some abstract content That he's that he's writing, or or some helpful tips that he thinks maybe will be applicable at some point in their life. No, he's addressing specific things to help guide them. That that as they approach life together, these are some specific things that are going to help them be more like Christ in their everyday life. So let's read this passage together to see what I mean. And and we're going to read all the way to verse thirteen, starting in in verse one of one Corinthians eight. It says this, now, about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. About eating food sacrificed to idols, then, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one, but one. For even if there there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, uh, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from him, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. However, not everyone has this knowledge. Some have, been said, uh, some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat the food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We're not worse off if we don't eat it, and we're not better off if we do eat it. But be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge, dining in an idol's temple won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? So the weak person, the brother or sister for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. Now, when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. As we read through this chapter, we see that this church in Corinth, because of their local culture, they faced a bit of a dilemma. (laughs) And it's one that we here in Glasgow don't typically face on a day in and day out basis. But this particular dilemma revolved around the practice of eating meat specifically meat that had been involved in ritual sacrifice to another god or to an idol. And what's helpful for us to know is that within the city of Corinth, this was an extremely common thing. This happened everywhere across the city. In fact, some commentators who write about this passage suggest that the vast majority of meat that was accessible to people for them to purchase from any butcher shop would have been this kind of meat. That's the kind of meat that was available. It would have had its origins from this kind of practice. Within temple life in Corinth, animals were commonly sacrificed to pagan idols and pagan, pagan worship. Part of that meat was burned in the sacrifice. A portion of that meat was given to the priest who offered the sacrifice, and still, if there was any left over, a small portion was given back to the person offering the sacrifice. And it was very common for the priest because of the amount of meat that they were receiving to sell off uh, a lot of their portion of meat to the local butcher shops. So as you frequented a butcher shop, you're then looking at the meat that had come from the temple. So that that may help us a little bit. And the problem was this, this meant that some of the highest quality of meat that was for sale in the local butcher shops were coming from pagan worship rituals. Now, when you went to a friend's house, what do you think they offered you to eat? Or if you went to the butcher shop to find your own family something, how how what did you what did you buy? How what did, what could you buy that wasn't this kind of meat? If you went to a local festival or a celebration, what about an important family event, a wedding? What do you think was offered? On top of all of that, most of these temples had dining halls like cafes where, or public spaces where, or that were open to the public where people would come and dine, they would sit and eat, and they would enjoy meals together. So even if you weren't worshiping there, you could go and have a meal and just like you would any other restaurant or cafe. So meeting up, even to simply have a catch-up, was a normal practice for people in Corinth like it is for us here. And as a follower of Jesus living in this city, what were you to do? Do you just get on with it and just don't even think about it? Or do you eat in these dining halls, even though they were part of temples dedicated to pagan worship? These issues that are being asked about here, they're not just side issues. They're not just preferences. They, these were difficult matters for this church, and they were wrestling with what to do, and it impacted the fundamentals of life for this church community. And the ethical problem with all of this is that some in the church ha- they they had this with the association with meat sacrificed to pagan deities, and, and within the pagan worship in Corinth, it was commonly thought that demon possession happened through eating meat, and the way to get rid of that was to go and have meat sacrificed to idols. So that's that's created this whole dynamic. Then, so I'm now eating meat that. Everyone else sees it, and they think, well, he's had it blessed by the priest so that it's good. Well, that doesn't really go hand in hand with what we know about following Jesus, does it? So therefore, if you could go and have meat purified at a temple, it would be okay in the eyes of, of the public. So what we can infer resulted within this church community was a discussion, and that's to be polite. It was a disagreement and a pretty sharp one at that because of what it inf- it impacted, which was Hall of Life. For some who had come out of pagan worship and turned to Christ, this would have been especially sensitive, as you can imagine. Partaking in food that had gone through these kinds of rituals or eating in these dining rooms was bothering their consciences because of their past life. Now, this isn't hard for us to understand. Just like someone coming out of alcohol addiction, who then is encouraged by a brother or sister in Christ to embrace freedom in Christ, that it's okay in moderation because of your freedom in Christ to partake in alcohol, it, it that could easily lead to a slippery slope, couldn't it? And as you can imagine, for many, this was a difficult position to be put into. For others, they obviously looked at this situation and they wondered whether or not this was damaging their witness before others in the community. If people in the community saw them eating in pagan Worship dining halls, or if they saw them eating meat that had been uh, associated with pagan worship, how, how what does that do for their personal witness as they live a life before Christ? But there was another group in the church, and this group had absolutely no issues with this, and they actually arrived at this uh, position through looking at the scripture. They reasoned from the scripture that it was totally fine, and their rationale was that these pagan gods They're not really gods at all because we know from the word that there's only one true God. So every other deity, every other idol is a false god. It's really not a god. There's no reality associated with this god because according to the scriptures, there is only one God. They were totally content to live in the freedom that Christ had purchased for them to joyfully partake in all of this with a clean conscience. Now, this discussion carries on for a few chapters. It's not just chapter 8. We're going to see over the next few weeks that uh, this even carries on, and Paul talks about larger issues. But uh, let's examine our passage today to see how the Apostle Paul begins to answer this. Look at the start of our passage with me. Go back to the beginning of our passage in in verse 1. It says, Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we have all knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything... He does not yet know it as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. About eating food sacrificed to idols then, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven and on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, there is one God, the Father. All things are from him and we exist for him and there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him and we exist through him. Now, let's start off by recognizing that those asking this question in the letter, they were very solid in their theology. They're they're exactly right in their doctrine. There is indeed only one God. There really isn't any other God according to Scripture. So they had that right. They had gone back into the Old Testament, back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, which was considered to be the most important passage in the Old Testament. But let's read what Deuteronomy six, verse four, says, which is considered to be part of the most important uh, passage in, in all of Scripture for the Jewish people, and then passed on to those early day Christians. It says, "Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one." There it is, right there. And they're writing to Paul. Part of their argument for eating of these things was that we all have knowledge, and Paul quotes that there. That's why maybe it's in your scriptures in quotes. Paul is is taking from their letter and he's quoting. He's using their words. God has given us the answer, they say in Deuteronomy 6, that there's only one God. Therefore, since there's only one true God, we should not care about pagan worship. We shouldn't care about meat associated with pagan worship or any false or made-up deity. In our passage, Paul does two things in addressing this argument. One, he agrees with them about their orthodox, solid theological stance— Paul Paul affirms the truth of this stance, but second, he does something that might surprise us. If you've read much of the writings of Paul, you might be surprised about his approach because normally he has a reputation of being very direct, very straight to the point. I mean, he even has strong words for different churches at different times, yet he's gentle with them. He's very gentle with them. He tries to help them have a larger perspective it's not the case here that he's very stern with them. Instead, and, and I have to wonder if this is because he believed they genuinely wanted his help in this issue. He's patient with them and gives them some amazing content to think about. He does this in a couple of ways. First, he points out in verse 2 of their position, and this is the strongest of, of his response to them. And he doesn't come right out and say they're arrogant, but he does point to their arrogance very gently. He says, if anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. He he gently says, you say you know all things, or, or, and they weren't claiming to know everything, but they were claiming to have a very solid knowledge of the faith. He's saying, you say you know all things. Well, that's a mark of really of arrogance, and it's a mark of you really don't know as much as you think you know. Uh, because if, if any of us who have been long in the faith for very long, if, if there's one thing we can attest to is the more we know, the more we learn, how little we know. And so here they are professing that they have got this issue figured out. And basically, he says that the person who thinks they're wise truly doesn't see how unwise they are. But he's also gentle with them down in verse 3. There he helps them by actually developing their own argument. He, he takes it even further. He, he, he takes what they have stated and he says, let's, let's expand this a bit. And he, he goes, and he doesn't just take verse 4 of that passage. He says, let's, let's keep reading the next verse of this passage, uh, because what's more important than simply knowing truth or having knowledge is loving God and being known by him. And he points that out by the very next verse, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 says, Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And verse 5 says, uh, And you shall the, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Though having knowledge about God and the things of God is really good, truly understanding and knowing the things of God means approaching truth from a place of love. Here's the issue that we'll be able to easily relate to today. This isn't a debate about abstract ideas. This isn't about being right or wrong. It's not about winning an argument. That's because the answer to all of this impacts and involves real lives. And real people, Paul's not just writing to a group, a faceless group of people, about what's right and what's wrong. He, he's he knows these people. He's lived life with these people. He's dealt with these people, uh, and he knows that they love one another, even if they struggle to do it well at times. It's easy for us to be so convinced that we are right about something that we then fight to win instead of remembering to love. Uh, you see that in marriage relationships all the time uh, we give advice from time to time to couples dean and i do and and that's it comes down a lot of times to how do you communicate when you're in a disagreement do you fight to win or do you or do you uh, exhibit patience with one another do you are you long suffering with with your marriage partner uh, do you give them love demonstrate love to them And this goes for how we think we should pursue loving God. It's easy for us to be convinced of this. But the thing with this group of Corinthians, the thing they had lost sight of was that second command that Jesus applies to this greatest command. So we see Paul takes their their quote in Deuteronomy and he reminds them that, yes, Jesus did quote this as the great command. But he also paired another command with this. And he took from Leviticus 19, because we're going to see this in Matthew 22, that the religious leaders came to Jesus one day and they're trying to trip him up. And uh, they pose this question to him. Teacher, what's the greatest command in all the law? And they're hoping for Jesus to have a misstep. But instead, Jesus goes back to this passage in Deuteronomy. And then he pairs this other passage. Look at this with me uh, from uh, Matthew 22, starting in verse 37. It says, he said to him, Love the Lord your God. Jesus said to this religious leader, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. So he quotes from Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, and all they're asking for, these religious leaders, is what's the greatest command? And Jesus goes on and gives them extra. He says the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. See, as passionate as we can be about the best way to love God, the best way to obey Him, we must be careful not to forget that we are not called to do that on an island by ourselves. God has called us to be in relationship with Him but he's also called us to live that out in relationship with one another. The context for how we will live relationship with God is living life with brothers and sisters in community. Those two things are inextricably linked together. And by the way, in Paul's pointing all of this out for the Corinthian church, he does them a tremendous favor here. I don't even know if they recognized in the day. I surely they did, but he does us a huge favor too as we read this. Centuries and centuries later, look back at verse 5 and 6 of our passage. It says, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from him, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. Paul goes back to that passage in Deuteronomy, the one that they had gone to, the one that we know so many of this day thought were was the most important part of Scripture. And he disciples this church by developing the truth about there only being one God. And he does that in a way that's going to help shape their understanding about Jesus. See, in the Old Testament, as you read through the prophets, you read through the writings, the way that God is contrasted with pagan gods of the day and, and false idols and false deities is through the argument that our God, The one true God is the creator God. He created all things. Uh, And you see that throughout the prophetic writings. All of the, the prophets, they come back to this argument that he's the one who made everything. And that's a typical defense for who God is. Paul ties not just the father to this. He ties Jesus Christ to this, the son, to this work of creation. He says that God is the only one because he is creator. He says, "You're right. There's one God, but then he includes Jesus in that definition of being one God." So when you read through the book of Proverbs, uh, you find that the character trait of wisdom is, is talked about a lot, and, and it's almost personified, and, and it's beautiful writing. But then something strange and mysterious happens as you start in chapter one and you're reading about wisdom, and wisdom speaks, and you're you're trying to figure this out. Verse eight, there's like this hinge point in this change, and wisdom stops. Being just this character trait, and it mysteriously begins to be tied to God's creative power in creation. Wisdom goes from being a character trait to being almost a person. It appears that suddenly is a person, and it's absolutely fascinating, it's confusing, it's interesting, but it's only confusing. If you, separ- if, if, if you don't look at this in terms of who Christ Jesus is, Paul uses the same language from Proverbs 8 and verse 6 of our passage as he ties Jesus to that personification of wisdom in the book of Proverbs. So what Paul does, just to, just to put all of this together, is he goes to the most important part of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, and he says, yes, there is only one true God. And Paul incorporates Jesus into that definition of one God. Then he does the same thing with the prophets as they argued for God being the one who created everything. And, and that's who we serve as we worship Jesus. And then just to round off the rest of Scripture, the, the rest of the genres of Scripture, Paul takes from the wisdom books and he shows that even there and in every place, Christ is part of that definition of the one true God. And to tie all of that together, to, to, for us to see how this fits Paul agrees with their initial assertion that there is one God, but he makes it clear that Jesus is incorporated into the definition of God. Paul also reminds them that it's not just about knowing things about how to obey God. That's not what God wants. He doesn't just want obedience. It's not just important that he, we understand about obedience. He wants us to understand about love. Because that's who God is. God is love. And there must be a balance with both truth and love. That's what God has called us to. And we just saw how the entirety of Scripture affirms that Jesus is included within that. And what did Jesus do? Let's just keep playing this out. He left an infinitely glorious place and laid down an infinitely glorious set of rights to sacrificially love those who could not help themselves. And to do that in such a way by making them family. We take two things away from this this morning. First, the Corinthians had no clue of the depths of knowledge that they did not know. Uh, I mean, in these two verses, Paul humbly demonstrates a depth of understanding that reveals the infancy of their knowledge about all of this. It just goes to show that even when we think we have it figured out in God's grace, He has a way of humbling us so that we draw nearer to Him. And second, Let's think about this. If Christ was willing to go to such great lengths for us, why wouldn't we be willing to sacrifice for one another? Even if that means giving up some of our liberty that we have and the freedom of knowing Christ, all for the sake of caring for the body. By answering the Corinthians in this way, Paul's trying to help them see that in their theological understanding of all of this, there's still so much more to learn. Yes, you and I do have some knowledge that we've been given from God, but do not become arrogant in that knowledge. Do do not let what knowledge you have hinder you from growing deeper in relationship with God. Instead, let it push you to love God more. Let it push you to love others more deeply. Because the way you love God and others in this issue of food sacrifice to idols impacts how you live. It speaks about the rest of your life, how you love the body of Christ. And this is especially important as we remember that all of this is surrounding an issue that for Corinthians, Scripture does not explicitly speak to. Throughout the Old Testament, God is continually reminding his people, though. Think about this. He's warning them not to associate with idols not to associate with idolatry or with any of the practices of those things. He tells them to go so far as not to even intermarry into peoples who have those kind of practices. And we've talked about over the last few weeks the dangers of, of believers marrying non-believers and how, to, how difficult that can be and how God forbids that. But here, he's continually saying, God continually saying things in the Old Testament like, I will not share my glory with another. Over and over again, God continues to tell His people that there is great danger in walking that line, and in flirting with that that boundary of idol worship. And to be clear, idols aren't just things that objects that people go and bow down before. They're also my phone that I pull out and I look about myself about my social news, my social media news feed. They're also money. It's also relationships. It's also stuff. It's also status at work. It's also all these things in life. Anything that takes the place of God Almighty on the throne of our heart is an idol. Participating in such things is a slippery slope towards falling away from God. And God warns his people not to build things in their lives that will bridge into idol worship or things that will diminish our devotion to God. Believe it or not, The way you and I understand this issue impacts the way you and I love others. Paul writes this in the last portion of our passage. Uh, We're going to start in verse 7. He says in verse 7, However, not everyone has this knowledge, this this knowledge about God being the only God and, and pagan deities not being real. Some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are not worse off if we don't eat. We're not better off if we do eat. But be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? So the weak person, the brother or sister for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge? Now, When you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. If you love your brother or sister in Christ, then you will not just care about winning a theological debate. You will also care about your stance on this great you'll, you'll care about how your stance on this great area affects them. If you truly love your brother or sister, then you'll be willing to sacrifice some of that liberty that you have in Christ for their sake. Remember, this issue is one that isn't directly addressed in scripture. I mean, if this were murder or theft or, or some kind of other explicit issue, Paul wouldn't be writing like this. But in this case, In the case of those things that are unaddressed, yes, reason it out from God's word, but also let your love for God and your your faith family guide you. What's most loving for your church family in this instance? Is it to force your liberty upon them? Is it to, to force your preferences upon them? Is it to force them to come around to your position, even though brothers and sisters amongst them, it goes against their conscience? The burden is on the more mature believer at this point that to sacrifice for the rest of the body. And we're called to lay down our rights and our liberty for the sake of the body of Christ so that our brothers and sisters grow in love and understanding of and for Jesus. Isn't that what Jesus did for us, though? He laid aside the rights he had in heaven as he took on flesh for our good. Not once did he ever stop being God. Let's be clear about that. But he relied, he consciously chose to rely upon the fellowship he had with the Spirit and with the Father to empower his life here and his ministry here. Instead of relying on his d- divinity as he lived as a man, he relied on that fellowship that he had. So to the Philippian church, Paul writes it this way, starting in verse 5 of, of Philippians 2, he says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. So yes, grow in your understanding of who God is through your, through his word, but let it it drive you to love God more. Let it drive you to love others more, which helps you to love God more. We have to remember that truth isn't actually fully truth if it's devoid of love. There must be balance in it. In fact, look what Paul says that, that our truth without knowledge can lead to down in our passage in verses 11 and 12. So the weak person, the brother or sister for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. Now, When you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Having a cavalier attitude to the consciences of others leads to their struggling and potentially even them having deep issues and crises of faith. When you and I are the cause of that, verse 12 says that we're sinning directly against Christ who has purchased them. Did... did, uh, did any of you ever have a sibling growing up and who, who just tried to stir you up a bit? Uh, I I know that I, I want to be careful because I know this is going around the world where, where my sibling could see this. Uh, usually in person, my sibling wouldn't see that, but uh, I'll just be bold and say, yes, I had that kind of sibling growing up who liked to stir the pot. But to be fair, it did go both ways at times as we were kids. What Did you ever find yourself in trouble, though, where your parents had sent you to your room and... You weren't to do anything but to sit and think about your, your your actions, only to hear from the other room your sibling your sibling had turned on your favorite television show and had begun to turn up the volume just a bit. They maybe turned it up just a little bit so you could hear on purpose. Uh, this just kind of flaunting it. And that's kind of the same <laughs> concept that we're talking about today. The same concept of of flaunting freedom before others that Paul had in mind. And granted, other Christians here aren't in trouble and they haven't done anything wrong. In fact, here we see Paul says that they're trying to live faithfully, um, faithful to their conscience before God. But that illustration, it helped me at least to see the dangers of imposing our freedom on others. I mean, imagine sitting there in your room, you hear your sibling from the other room and you just begin to boil on inside because you know that they're doing that on purpose. And it's my favorite show, and I, it's, it's just driving me crazy. We, in our, in our liberty, should not flaunt that before others. We should not cause the consciences of our brothers and sisters to be stirred up, because all that's going to result of that is strife, is anger, is bitterness. Instead, be careful not to cause others to stumble as you live out your liberty and freedom. <clears throat> so what do you and I do when we're faced with issues today that aren't spelled out in God's Word? What do we do? There are several issues I can think of off the top of my head where this is debated and there's disagreement across the wider body of Christ. Things like today, alcohol consumption, like I mentioned. Or what's okay to watch on television or in films? What, what kind of content is acceptable? Where's the line of Too much. As, as we think about what's explicit and what's not in, in films and in television? What can we allow our children to see as they engage in forms of entertainment? What's, what's acceptable for them? Uh, what about the question of where the line is on modest attire and how strict you should be on this? I mean, across the body of Christ, God-fearing, Christ-devoted, gospel-minded men and women genuinely disagree on a lot of these issues. So in general, how do we as God's people, approach these kind of topics. Well, Paul lays it out quite well for us here. One, first, we have to ask the question, how can we apply the great commandment? Does this lead to my loving God more? Does it take away from me loving God more? Does this lead to my brothers and sisters loving God more? Or does this practice cause them to stumble? Is the exercising of your liberty in a particular area, causing someone else to stumble, then you shouldn't. Then shouldn't you and I consider our brother and sister first? I recognize this morning, our today our, our passage was heavily focused on the more mature, uh, limiting their personal liberty for the sake of others. And we're going to see Paul kind of temper this later on in, in the next two chapters. He's going to address the other perspective of this, but for today, for the sake of today, we really want to lean into this idea of why wouldn't I be willing to lay down some of my liberty for the sake of my brothers and sisters? And if I'm not willing to do that, what does that say about me? What does it say about my love for my brothers and sisters? That's one. Secondly, the second way we approach this topic is it's related, but it's found in asking the question, how can you display the gospel in the midst of this? We want to make sure we're walking according to the truth, but let's be clear that walking in truth is only God-honoring when it's in love. In applying the gospel, we have to clarify whether our liberty in a particular situation is actually a barrier to others following Jesus. For the sake of the gospel going forward, we have to be willing to joyfully let go of certain things. For the Corinthians, if that meant they had to abstain from eating in certain places, or eating meat, Paul says. And I know for a lot of us, me included, that'd be a very difficult thing to do. Uh, but what are we willing to do? What length is too far to go to to share the love of Christ, to, to, to avoid being a barrier to the gospel in my life and to others' lives? Now, Maybe this morning you're visiting with us online and, and you're tuning in today and you feel maybe like you stepped into the middle of a, of a family conversation of another family and it feels a little awkward. And we want you to know that's okay. We're so glad you're here. But we also want you to know that this conversation also does apply to you too. And that's because everything we're talking about is coming from the perspective of walking in relationship with God through the person of Jesus. And and today, if you've never put faith in Jesus as uh, having relationship with God, and, and if you've ever wondered what that looks like, we would love to chat with you more about that. And, and as we read the Bible, we see that even though this world is broken and every single one of us, every one of us, has rebelled against God and His ways, that even though we turned our back on Him and shunned Him, He still, in His love and His mercy, made a way for us to have a relationship with Him through Jesus coming to this earth and living a perfect life and dying to take the price of my rebellion and your rebellion. And and he offers us forgiveness freely. He offers us hope and peace. He offers us belonging today if we'll put faith and trust in Jesus today. And if you'd like to talk with someone more about this or if you'd like prayer regarding this, I invite you to click the button that's going to Uh, pop up in the live chat feed that says raise hand or right below this window that says request request prayer if you're watching live with us today on one of our live streams but if you're watching this later we invite you to contact us email us at info at denistonbaptist.co.uk contact us on social media we would love the opportunity to talk more with you about this christian rejoice that you're free today but let's consider how best to apply that freedom as we live in community with the rest of the body of Christ. I close out this morning uh, just turning our attention to our missional communities, which we're going to move to after uh, Paul and Claire come and lead us in a couple more songs. But as we move to our missional communities, I have just a few questions I want to offer as a point of discussion. And and they're going to come up on the screen here. And The first one is, are there areas where you struggle internally because of a difference in convictions for others within the church community? Well, in mission communities, if you're new to us, there, there are places where we can have honest conversation, and that's what these questions are driving us toward. Secondly, have you reconciled that in your heart? Have you reconciled that in your heart thus far, that there's differences? If so, how? How did what did that look like? Third, is there anyone with whom this has caused either conflict or the harboring of bitterness? And what do you need to do to reconcile those differences? Finally, what are some things that would help us as we think about letting go of some freedoms for the sake of the rest of the body? We invite you to to have a conversation about that today, to dialogue, and here's my challenge. My challenge for you today as you have these conversations with your missional communities uh, is not to spend 20 minutes catching up on the week and the last three talking about these questions and then a prayer, I challenge you, dive right into these questions. Let them be a bridge into your weekly meeting if you're meeting this week. Uh, We love you, brothers and sisters. We are praying for you, and we're so thankful for you. Let me pray as we close this morning. Father, we, we rejoice and we delight in the freedom that we have in Christ. Freedom from guilt, freedom from shame, freedom to worship you to worship you in spirit and in truth, to live a life free of the bondage that we used to be in. But God, today we joyfully say that we submit our hearts to you. We submit our lives to you. Lord, and in that submission, if that means we need to abstain from some things in our lives for the sake of loving our brothers and sisters, we want to bring that before you today. Lord, help us to see areas in our lives where this may be happening right now where we need to change. Make it clear to us today. Father, I pray for clear communication within our church family that if this is happening, that it wouldn't be ignored, it wouldn't go unspoken, but that communication and love, gospel-centered love would happen. May that be the case, Lord. And, And may the result of all this be us being a people that resembles you more and more. Refine us, God. Help us to be more like you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.